You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 127 by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Matthew Barton, entitled The Mission of the New Spirit of Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution, 16 Lectures. This is Lecture 10, entitled Aphorisms on the Relationship between Spiritual Science and Philosophy, Reflections to Complement the Lectures on Title Occult Physiology, given in Prague on the 28th of March, 1911. Following the public lectures on how to refute spiritual science and how to defend spiritual science, as well as the reflections I offered over the past few days in the lecture cycle on occult physiology, a range of questions can emerge, and the need to discuss these questions a little with my listeners. The two public lectures aimed, above all, to highlight the need for awareness of the possible objections that may be raised against spiritual science. The occult investigator can fully acknowledge the justification of such objections. But on the other hand, as you will have seen from these lectures, a very particular, sharply delineated position can be adopted when it comes to defending the truths of spiritual science against them. With insight into the difficulties that arise for spiritual science, every anthroposophist should feel the need to represent the truths of spiritual science with the greatest possible accuracy and precision. This is something of which those representing these matters, with knowledge of all the relevant circumstances, will be very aware. And yet, despite everything I emphasized in the public lectures, they will still inevitably collide with people who adhere to the position of modern science. And for this reason, however curious it may seem, anthroposophy requires us to clothe in words truths drawn down from higher worlds, but at the same time to use the most precise logical formulations couched in the forms of ordinary rational discourse. Those who set themselves this task to formulate things in a precise and logical way and in doing so to avoid everything that might be word-padding or rhetorical glossing, will often feel how easily they can be misunderstood, simply because in our time there is not a universal need to accept truths thus expressed in as exact and precise a way as they are uttered. In our era, even where people engage in the activity of science, they are not accustomed to taking things exactly as intended. If you very precisely assimilate what is said in this way, not only should you not alter anything in the phrases used, but you should also attend very carefully to the limits that are included in such formulations. Here's a simple example that recently arose during questions and answers. Someone asked, If dream consciousness is only a kind of picture consciousness, how does it happen that a sleeper can perform certain subconscious actions such as sleepwalking? The questioner had not noticed that when I said 
the contents of dream consciousness are pictorial in nature, this did not mean they were only pictorial. Since the scope of dream consciousness was described only from one angle, the very nature of this characterization allowed for the fact that just as our actions in waking life follow from our waking consciousness, so certain actions of a less conscious nature can also follow from the picture consciousness of dream. I am not in the least complaining when I say that imprecise listening is one of the chief reasons why anthroposophy and those who represent it meet with so many misunderstandings today. Such misunderstandings do not come only from opponents of anthroposophy, but to a great degree also from its adherents. And perhaps a great part of the blame for misunderstandings that arise in the wider world toward spiritual science lies with those who stand within the movement. If we survey the disciplines that are held in due regard today, we might gain a general sense that anthroposophy is most closely related to the various branches of philosophy. This is certainly correct, and because of this, it might easily be supposed that the best means of meeting with understanding for anthroposophic insights would be in the field of philosophy. But it is precisely here that we encounter other difficulties. Philosophy, as it is cultivated everywhere today, has become a specialized discipline to a far greater extent than it was only a relatively short time ago. It has become a specialized field. And if we consider what it actually practices today, and not its various theories, we find that its activity is focused upon abstract regions. Philosophers show little inclination to apply philosophy to a specific or tangible apprehension of realities. Indeed, difficulties arise in modern philosophical discourse if you try to apply philosophical endeavors to the real world. The theory of knowledge that was developed with great acuity in various directions in the second half of the 19th century and through into our own time arose in the form it now exists largely because people sensed these difficulties in drawing concepts down from the abstract heights of thinking and applying them to facts and realities. Now it can be felt, especially in lectures such as this cycle on occult physiology, how anthroposophy must seek everywhere to bring the supersensible contents of consciousness to bear on our actual world. To put it somewhat trivially, Anthroposophy is not as well off as modern philosophy, which remains in abstract regions and has little inclination to encompass in its reflections concepts such as the blood, the liver, or the pancreas, thus terms that apply to reality. Philosophy would take fright at the thought of having to build a bridge from its abstract formulations to tangible, immediate realities as we encounter them in things and occurrences. In this respect, anthroposophy is more reckless, and from a philosophical perspective, can easily be seen as an activity of the mind which audaciously and unjustifiably builds bridges from the most rarefied spirit to the lowliest mundanities.
Now it is surely interesting to ask why philosophy finds it so difficult to approach anthroposophy. Perhaps it is precisely because philosophy refrains from such bridge building. But for spiritual science this fact is in certain respects disastrous. For our anthroposophic insights, especially when we seek to lead them down as far as logical discourse, very frequently meet with resistance. Especially from philosophers, we encounter resistance in this respect. In fact, you meet less resistance by throwing caution to the winds, as it were, and recounting more sensational observations from higher worlds. People often seem to forgive this relatively more easily, for such things are firstly interesting, and secondly, people think that because they themselves cannot perceive these worlds, there is therefore no requirement for them to make any judgment about them. But anthroposophy endeavors to bring down into rational understanding everything that can be discovered in higher worlds. Such realities are discovered through supersensible inquiry in supersensible worlds. But in our modern era, the presentation and description of such realities should be clothed in rigorously logical forms. Wherever this is already possible today, we should show how the most tangible of outward processes can everywhere confirm what we assert on the basis of spiritual inquiry. In this whole process of drawing insights down from the world of spirit and clothing them in logical or other rational formulations and presenting them in a way that satisfies the logical needs of our age, there exists, it has to be said, a really very understandable source of the most numerous misunderstandings. Consider for a moment the complex nature of what has been said in these lectures on occult physiology, presentations that must be taken everywhere with qualifications, with precise acknowledgement of their due scope and limits. Consider the very complex nature of the mobile, fluctuating world of spirit, and compare this world of spirit in all its variability, in the difficulty one has in encompassing what descends from spiritual worlds in coarse concepts. Compare this with the ease with which one can characterize any outward fact by means of an experiment or by sense observation and describing it in logical terms. Now the tendency exists everywhere in philosophy, wherever concepts are explained and described, to take account of nothing other than ideas gained from the world, the sensory world spread before us. This becomes especially apparent in philosophy when it is obliged, in the field of ethics, say, to discover a source for its fundamental concepts other than those that can be derived from the physical world. We find, and this would not be hard to demonstrate, but of course only by citing extensive passages from contemporary philosophical literature, that in philosophical arguments the concepts used are coarse in nature, because they basically take account only of the world of sense perception that surrounds us, from which these philosophical concepts are formulated. Is there anything to suggest that in formulating the most primary concepts in philosophy, contents of consciousness 
could be drawn from anywhere other than the sense-perceptible world? In a nutshell, modern philosophy lacks the means to understand anthroposophy since its theories cannot relate to concepts such as those we cultivate in our anthroposophic discourses. In philosophical literature, the mind's scope is determined by formulating concepts only by reference to the outward, sense-perceptible world, rather than to contents that originate other than in sense-perceptions. Spiritual science has to obtain its concepts by quite different means. It has to rise to supersensible perception and draw its concepts down from the supersensible realm. But it also has to immerse itself in reality and master philosophical concepts gained through observation of the sense world. If we picture the world schematically for a moment, on the one hand we have in philosophy concepts gained through outward perception, and on the other, concepts gained from the supersensible realm through spiritual perception. And if we survey the field of concepts we use to communicate, we must say this, If anthroposophy is to be regarded as justified, then our concepts must be drawn from both sides, on the one hand from sense perception and on the other from spiritual perception, and these two sides have to meet each other within our conceptual field. And there's a diagram. We must acknowledge the need in anthroposophic accounts specifically to reconcile concepts drawn from the world of spirit with philosophical concepts, that is, to enable our terms and concepts to relate everywhere to those gained from the outer sense world. Our modern theories of knowledge are more or less exclusively founded on concepts gained from only one direction. I do not mean to say that there are not also theories of knowledge that allow for a supersensible element as origin of their concepts. But wherever something is to be positively proven, examples are characterized by the fact that the terms employed are drawn only from the left-hand side of the schema, that is, from the world of sensory, physical perceptions. This is also perfectly natural, since philosophy does not, as such, acknowledge spiritual realities. No account is taken of the possibility of rendering spiritual realities in concepts, in the same way as realities of the physical world. This fact means that anthroposophy finds no common prepared ground in philosophy when it seeks dialogue with it. And philosophers cannot easily understand the way in which terms and concepts are employed in anthroposophy. It's like this. In relation to the outer world of sense-perception, It is easy to give concepts clear, sharp outlines. Things themselves have these clear outlines, sharp delineations, and we can easily offer clear concepts for them. But in relation to the mobile, fluctuating world of spirit, much has first to be united and reconciled, and concepts must be carefully limited or enlarged in order to formulate and characterize. The modern theory of knowledge is most unfit for encompassing concepts such as those employed in spiritual science. 
when defining concepts and taking the foundations for such definition, whether consciously or unconsciously, from one side only, all the concepts we formulate are tinged, without our knowledge, by something that gives rise to epistemological terms that are of no use at all for explaining or elucidating anything in anthroposophy. The concept supplied by, as it were, the non-anthroposophic world is simply an unfit tool for characterizing what spiritual science draws down from the world of spirit. Now there is one term in particular which has proven terribly disruptive in the field of epistemology. I'm well aware that this is not acknowledged, and yet it is so. And this concerns the point if we disregard all finer points that have been ingeniously elaborated during the 19th century, where the problem of epistemology is formulated as follows. How does the I, capital, with its content of consciousness, or to avoid speaking of the I, we can say, how do we succeed in relating our content of consciousness to any reality? These trains of thought with the exception of certain epistemological schools in the 19th century, led to a theory of knowledge which repeatedly stumbles when it tries to explain how the trans-subjective or transcendent element, that is, what lies beyond our consciousness, manages to enter our mind. Admittedly, this is only a rough-and-ready account of this problem of knowledge, but it does, more or less, cover the difficulties involved if we ask how the subjective content of our consciousness approaches the reality of existence. How can it relate itself to reality? You see, we have to recognize that even if we assume the existence of a trans-subjective reality lying outside our consciousness, what is contained in our consciousness cannot directly approach it. A content of the mind is posited within us, and we must then ask how it is possible to emerge from this content of consciousness into a reality that is independent of our mind. An important modern epistemologist characterized this problem in telling terms. The human eye, capital, insofar as it comprises the scope of consciousness, cannot, he said, overleap itself and it would have to leap beyond itself if it were to succeed in leaping into reality. But then it would exist within reality and not within the mind. For this epistemologist, therefore, it seems clear that we can deduce nothing at all about how the content of our mind relates to actual reality. Many years ago, in my epistemological writings, I was concerned to formulate this epistemological problem which is also fundamental to anthroposophy, and then to surmount the difficulties that arise from a formulation such as I have now given. In the process, though, curious things occurred. At the time I am speaking of, for example, there were philosophers who assumed, very much like Schopenhauer, that, quote, the world is my idea, close quote. That is, what is present in the mind is initially only the content of my thought. And then one must see how to build a bridge from this thought content to what lies outside of what is thought or conceived, to trans-subjective reality. 
Now, anyone not daunted and over-impressed by assertions that philosophers make in this realm, especially in epistemological writings from the 70s and the first half of the 80s of the last 19th century, but instead approaching these issues with an open mind, will immediately ask this. If something is, quote, my idea, close quote, and if this idea or mental picture of mine is meant to be more than merely the content of my mind, if it is to have a self-founded validity, this points to something that basically cannot lie before the point at which epistemological theory sets to work, but can only be ascertained after these far more important epistemological principles have been examined. We first have to ask, you see, why we should be permitted to regard something appearing as the content of my mind as, in quotes, my idea. Do we have the right to say that what appears within my mind is my idea? Epistemology has no right at all to start from the judgment that this given is my own thought. But it is obliged, rather, if it really seeks to start from an a priori position, to first prove the fact that what appears in my mind is only its subjective content. Naturally, there are hundreds of possible objections to what I have just said, but I do not think it is possible to maintain a single one of them on closer scrutiny. A well-known and important philosopher once gave me a curious answer when I drew his attention to this dilemma and tried to explain to him that one should first check whether it was justified in epistemological terms to describe a thought or mental picture as something not real. He said this, quote, But it's self-evident. The very definition of the word mental picture already tells us that we are picturing something in our minds and therefore it isn't real. Close quote. So firmly were such ideas rooted in him from centuries of philosophical discourse that he could not grasp the fact that such a definition is as yet entirely unsubstantiated. If we wish to ascertain anything within the scope of the world around us, and by the phrase world around us, I mean the world we have around us in ordinary daily life, for instance, that the world we see is a mental picture, then we must be clear that we cannot ascertain such a thing at all without what we call our thinking activity, without thoughts and concepts. At present I am not saying anything about such a statement being in formal logical terms already a judgment. But the moment we in any way begin not to allow something simply to be as it appears before us, but instead take a view of it, ascertain it in some manner, make a statement about it, we intervene in the world around us with our thinking. And if we are to have any right to intervene in the world, such that we determine something to be, in quotes, subjective, then we must be aware that the defining and determining activity that calls something subjective cannot itself be subjective. You see, if we assume that this is the sphere of subjectivity, parenthesis, draws a circle on the board and above it writes the word subjectivity, close parenthesis, 
and from this sphere issues, say, the statement that A is subjective, is my mental picture, in quotes, or whatever we call it, then the statement is itself subjective. We must deduce from this not that we should allow this statement to be valid, but rather that such a conclusion should not be made, for it would cancel itself out. If a subjectivity can only be ascertained out of itself, this would be a self-canceling conclusion. If the statement A is subjective is to have any meaning, it cannot issue from the sphere of subjectivity, but from a reality that lies outside the subjectivity. This means that if the I, capital, is to be in any position at all, to say that something possesses a subjective character, for instance, that it is my mental picture, if the I is to have the right to define something as subjective, then it cannot itself reside within the subjective sphere, but must make such a conclusion from outside the sphere of subjectivity. In other words, we should not attribute the statement that something is subjective to the I that is itself subjective. And this gives us a way out of the sphere of subjectivity. We recognize that we could not determine what is subjective and objective and would have to relinquish the very first steps in thinking about this altogether if we did not possess a relationship to both subjectivity and objectivity in which both have an equal share in us. This leads us to see though I cannot elaborate on this further here, that our eye should not only be regarded as subjective, but is in fact more comprehensive than our subjectivity. We have a right to exclude from any given content, thus from something objective, what pertains subjectively to it. Initially, we encounter the various terms, objective, subjective, and trans-subjective. Objective is, of course, different from trans-subjective. Bracket, there's a gap in the transcript here, close bracket. Now, with these provisos, we need to see whether we are able to remove the stumbling block that is one of the most significant obstacles in epistemology. The question as to whether the whole scope of our eye can be found within subjectivity or not. You see, if the I must also share in objectivity the question, quote, can something enter the subjective sphere, close quote, acquires a quite different form. As soon as we can assign the I a participation in the sphere of objectivity, the I must possess qualities that are of the same kind as objectivity. That is, it must be possible to discover something of the sphere of objectivity in the I. And so we may now assume a relationship between objective and subjective that deviates considerably from the view that nothing can filter through from trans-subjectivity into the subjective sphere. In saying that nothing can filter through into the subjective domain, we have firstly defined the subjective in epistemological terms as being self-enclosed, self-contained, and secondly, we have employed a term that is only justified for a certain sphere of reality, 
but cannot have validity for the whole scope of reality. This term is the, quote, thing in itself, close quote, a concept that plays a significant role in the words of many epistemologists. It is like a net in which philosophical thinking traps itself. But people fail to notice here that this concept only applies to a certain sphere of reality and that it ceases to be valid where this sphere ceases. The concept is valid, for instance, in the material realm. I'll cite the example of a signet and sealing wax. If you take a signet with the name Smith on it and press it into hot sealing wax, you can rightly say that nothing of the signet ring can filter through into the sealing wax. So, here you have something where this, quote, not filtering through, close quote, applies. But the name Smith itself can flow entirely into the sealing wax and be captured there. And if the sealing wax could speak and wish to make clear that nothing of the substance of the signet had transferred to it, it would nevertheless have to accept that the name Smith had been transferred to it in full. So here we have already passed beyond the realm where the concept of thing in itself remains valid. What caused this concept, which appears in subtler form in Kant, then rather ham-fistedly in Schopenhauer, but was later described with great acuity by the most varied epistemologists of the 19th century to acquire such importance? If we examine this more closely, we see that it was because what people elaborate in concepts does, after all, depend on their whole manner of thinking. Only in an age in which all concepts must be described as developing in response and in relation to outward perception was it possible for a term such as thing in itself to develop. But concepts acquired only from outward perception are not suited for characterizing spiritual realities. If epistemology had not been invested with such a concealed and thoroughly masked materialism, for this is the salient fact here, there really is an easily recognizable materialism inhabiting epistemology, then people would see that an epistemology that is to apply to the spiritual realm must also possess concepts that are not so roughly hewn as that of the thing in itself. For the realm of spirit, where we cannot actually speak of outside and inside in the same sense, it must be apparent that we need subtler concepts. I would have to write a whole book to do this justice and have only touched on it briefly here. Such a book would have to have several volumes, since it would need to cover metaphysical considerations as well as the history of philosophy and epistemology. But you can see from what I have said that this kind of thinking, springing from deep, concealed preconceptions, is of no use for everything that extends into the world of spirit. I have now been talking for an hour about this most abstract concept. I have tried to make it comprehensible, and I fully recognize that possible objections to what I have said, of which I am very much aware, may of course have arisen in some of my listeners. If this were a different kind of gathering, I might have been obliged to give special grounds for burdening my listeners, if you like, by speaking in the most abstract and, as many may think, 
convoluted terms instead of offering the usual and expected subject matter. But in the course of our studies we have repeatedly seen that one of the qualities of anthroposophy is our obligation to develop knowledge in this movement and gradually by so doing to overcome an errant concept that exists everywhere, a very misleading one, that suggests these things are beyond our scope, that we should not preoccupy ourselves with them, and that they cannot interest us. Those who concern themselves with philosophical questions, and who may be familiar at first hand with rather poorly attended conferences on epistemology, may be surprised that there are here in our movement so many people who, after all, might be seen as complete epistemological dilettantes in the view of this or that philosopher, who nevertheless attend a gathering on such a theme in large numbers. In fact, in some places, we have had larger audiences for lectures on philosophical matters inserted between others on anthroposophy. But if we consider this more carefully, we can say that it is actually one of the best testimonies to anthroposophists. They know that they should listen with an open mind to all objections that are presented. They can do so calmly, for they know very well that while objections to the results of inquiry into supersensible worlds are possible and justified, nevertheless, much that has been dismissed as illogical can ultimately turn out, after all, to be perfectly logical. Anthroposophists also learn to feel obliged to acquire knowledge even if this is arduous, to make it their own, to concern themselves with epistemology and logic. And in this way they will become ever more able not only to engage with presentations on general anthroposophic themes, but also to undertake serious work with logical concepts and categories. The world will have to come to see that philosophy in its broadest sense can be reborn within the anthroposophic movement. Enthusiasm for philosophical rigor, for the thorough logical forming of concepts, will gradually make itself at home within the anthroposophic movement. This is not to say that the results on closer inspection are already fully satisfactory. We need to be modest about our achievements so far. But we are on the way to this goal. The more we develop goodwill, for conscientious thought and science, for philosophical rigor, the more our anthroposophic work will not only pursue transient personal aims, but also ones that sustain and advance humanity. Much is so far only a first budding of will. But it becomes apparent that in the will that is applied to knowledge, there already lies something like an ethical self-education, achieved by the interest we bring to bear upon anthroposophy. If no other obstacles arise than those already present, the world at large will not be able to withhold its acknowledgement that anthroposophists do not seek for easy fulfillment of their inner longings, but that in anthroposophy there exists an earnest striving for philosophical rigor and conscientiousness rather than mere dilettantism. The striving will be well suited to honing people's philosophical conscience. If we regard anthroposophic teachings not as dogmas, but understand rather what anthroposophy can be as a real power in the soul, this can be a fuel 
for this human soul to kindle hidden powers within it and to come increasingly to consciousness of its destiny. Within our movement, therefore, let us nurture this enthusiasm for rigorous logic and epistemology. And in this way, standing ever more firmly on the ground of our physical world, we can learn to look up to worlds of spirit with ever greater clarity and without sentimentality or nebulous mysticism. We can learn to draw down the content of that world and integrate it into our physical worldview. Whether or not we wish to do so is the sole deciding factor in whether we can give anthroposophy a real mission in humanity's earth existence. The end of Lecture 10